to another episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me as always is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. How are you today, Chris? I'm laughing because holy hell, that was an explosion <laughs> of energy coming right off the top, man. Yeah. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm all right. I finally got a couple of mornings of skiing in. We got some snow finally. Yay! Ooh, nice. Yeah. Nice, nice. Well, I've been threatening to come out and visit you and go skiing, so hopefully yes, I can pull that off this winter. It's been a minute since I did that. Today, we are doing something, I guess, slightly different because I'm going to kind of interview you here okay. today because you have been mentioning on the podcast a few times that you have dug back into your catalog and are doing some remixing of yes, some old material. I am. I thought that this would be an interesting thing to kind of drill down on and see what your experience have been, what you've learned through this process of mm -hmm. remixing stuff. So I'm just going to dive right in. What made you decide that you wanted to revisit this material? Taylor Swift. Yeah? Yeah. I'm not yeah, a big fan of know, Taylor. You already no. own your master's. So. I know. I own my master's. I'm not doing it for the same reason that she did it. That's the humor of it, I guess. However, that was a bit of the impetus to it, her decision to do that. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Okay. Because I thought I thought I knew you, but I guess I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not a huge uh, Taylor Swift fan. It's it, Don't get it that way. It's just no, no, the no, fact I, that it was the idea of it becoming so public and such a big deal for her to do it. It got me to thinking about my past catalog in a sense, even though I own my master's. What I was going to get to there was I thought the general idea came up on, because you have a rather extensive Christmas catalog as well. I did. I still yeah. do, actually, I guess. Right. <laughs> so a while back, you did remixes of those because there were certain things that you felt could have been better. And yes. that Christmas stuff is like it comes around every year whether you wanted to or not, right? So right. it's one of those things that – Well, the initial impetus idea. of that one was playing pickleball at a Christmas party. One of the As other players – Yes, of course. One of the other players had a portable Bluetooth – stereo thing that he brought to the court and he wanted to play Christmas music and he knew that I was a musician. He's like, let's play some of yours. And so we're playing pickleball to my Christmas music as we're playing. And it struck me as like, oh, man, I could have done that better. Could have done that better. Could have done that better. And that was what was going through my head in that I needed to redo it. And I spent, what, four months, I think, redoing that, which was longer than I anticipated it taking. But when I you think about it, with so, it being yeah. 30 songs, that was quite an undertaking to redo all that. And it was more than just doing a remix on the Christmas stuff. It was also using better samples for orchestral instruments and other things that, in the day that it was done, weren't nearly as good as they are now. Yeah, sure. That's what I thought you had a positive experience with the outcome of that. that I did have a positive experience. In. Right. Now, with the other part of your catalog here that is not Christmas related, but right. you decided to go into What was the goal? Was it simply just to kind of make it better because of all the aforementioned situations? There was a two-part value to it. One is... What I know now is substantially way more than what I knew then. 
especially <laughs> over the course yeah. of a career of 30 years. <laughs> this is the best way of saying it. The other was I had a former colleague of ours. He's still around. He's not like he's dead. He's a drummer. He requested to play along to one of my songs from my first solo record. He showed me the video. I really liked what he did. The problem was what he took out took out too much because he was using mm-hmm. some sort of AI thing to redo the tracks. Right, the strip out that, yeah. And I told him, you know, let me re-output the thing for you and send it to you without the drums on it, but with the other stuff that I think is vital to the song. When I pulled it out, it was more than just re-exporting the thing without the drums. <laughs> because there were all kinds of issues with plugins that I didn't have anymore. The mix could have been improved kind of thing. All of that to say was like, you know what? Give me an extra day or two before I send this to you. Let me mix this again and fix some stuff, which required other things once I delved into it, getting the files out. Isn't that always the case that when you open up like an old project, you can't help but to start like, pushing and pulling faders again and just kind of, ooh, that sounds kind of weird. Let me just fix that. Mm -hmm. And and the temptation is just... uh, I don't know if it's so much temptation as is like, this would be my normal workflow now that I didn't have then. Well, yeah, sure. Bringing up workflow there, what have you noticed about this sort of bigger differences, what you tended to do at that point? Because we were doing the math here before we started recording and we're going back at least 25 years right for for the album that i'm thinking Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. obviously a lot has changed there but as you're looking at your tracks and workflow wise which was the question you just asked yeah i was very linear in my approach to recording in logic meaning if i had a guitar part i created a guitar track i recorded that guitar part if the next thing was Bass, I created a bass track, and I recorded the bass. If the next thing was a vocal, then I recorded a vocal. If I needed another guitar, then it was another guitar. It's very haphazard to how the organization of the tracks went. So it sounds like, just like you're describing, very sort of unorganized the way you had it. heavily unorganized. (laughs) But also a almost like a tape mindset, it sounds like, where you would, if you're describing it the way I think you are, it's like, okay starting to track on bar whatever and then you're playing through the whole song did you notice that was that not so much a part of it yes and no i would almost liken it to the concept that is the precog in minority report where they were trying to download yes they (laughs) were trying to download the reference of something that happened in real life that didn't agree with the other two precogs and it just comes pouring out and he's like this is coming out all backwards or whatever just disorganized i was spilling my brain out at the order of whatever came out for the song and i didn't organize it in a good way that is great for a mixing engineer i wasn't treating myself as a mixing engineer, I was just treating myself as the dude recording all this shit and eventually mixing it on the fly most of the time. Yeah. So if something was slightly off, I would chop it, but I wouldn't do the editing that I would do now in that regard of cleanup and all sorts of other things. Did you find that there was a lot of extraneous noise and things like that that you discovered now that you had to go in and clean up as you're doing it? Or was there a certain part of that had been taken care of? Not terribly noisy, no. 
I was always pretty good about how I recorded things in terms of miking things up. On a couple of the guitar tracks across the entire album, there were some elements of 60 cycle hum. Sure, easily removable now. Right. But I'm thinking more in the way of string noises in between takes or in between sections or whatever. I was thinking that kind of cleanup, like throat clearing in between vocal lines, that type of thing. Oddly enough, I was generally pretty good about that. All right, not in terms you. of editing, but just not doing it in front of a mic. Yeah. <laughs> I guess well, is the best way of saying it. G- good quality to have, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Besides the disorganization, was there anything that leapt out at you? Like, I can't believe I used to do this or... Yeah, I didn't color code anything. It was just the default color for every track in Logic. Every track is blue. (laughs) Every track is blue. Exactly. It was like, ouch. (laughs) Yeah, it's shocking sometimes. I've opened up sessions now and it looks like unicorns and rainbows everywhere. (laughs) It's just god awful. No, Mm -hmm. nice is not the word I would use. When you went back into your tracks here then, Mm -hmm. what were you mainly focused on trying to fix? Was it overall sound? Or were you digging in a little bit deeper to try to correct timing, tuning, that kind of stuff? It started with the sonic stuff, mm-hmm. wanting it to sound better, wanting it to sound like it was mixed in a console situation, because it wasn't originally. Right. After it got into that point, it got into, I'm correcting some slight pitches here and there. Nothing that was so drastically off that it was ridiculous, but stuff that's just like, in today's age, it's like, if you release it now, it's got to sound pretty much spot on. Not that you don't have human flaws, but at the same time, people want stuff to sound pretty darn good in that regard. So pitch correction started some of it. Then once I did that, there were elements to the drumming that really made me cringe. I didn't think about it so much back at the time it was recorded. At the time of remixing it, it's like, I can do this. Some of it had to be done by hand and it was time consuming, but it was well worth it because now the groove and the flow feels way, way stronger to the song itself rather than being kind of a messy mishmash should be a good way of saying it. And not that everything was drastically off. It's just off enough that when you pile everything on, it just sounds a little mushy. Yeah. And it's a interesting thing with drummers because I know these were not programmed parts. These No, were they were played by parts, a live right? drummer. Yeah. So there's sort of almost sounds like Spinal Tap-esque here, but there is sort of a fine line in between having a feel Mm-hmm. like really pushing or pulling, or you're just out of time. Yeah. Today, with all the tools that we have, we are so used to hearing things that are perfect Locked you know, to a or, grid, or yeah. close to perfect that it sounds odd when it isn't. And we start hearing things like, I know for me, it's like you hear stuff and it just doesn't sound finished. Right. It's like, oh, that hit is just slightly off and it just really bugs me where the 70s would be like, oh, it's, the way it was played. It's a cool vibe. Yeah. Right, exactly. You mentioned the impact there that you got out of the tracks after you had done some of the timing, the timing yeah. things. Right. You were tracking these with V drums, correct? The drums in terms of the live drumming portion were tracked with V drums. Yes. Yeah. The TD-10, which and I'm sure that, by now is 
Ancient. Ancient. Ready for the scrap heap. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Do you remember, were they the stock V-drum sounds or were you triggering other stuff? Because I think you had Clear Mountain CD samples and things like that. Or yes, were they I did. The original V-drum. So to answer your question, the drums themselves were recordings of the V-drum sounds. Mm-hmm. Some of the songs had not only the V-drum sounds, but layered with some samples. Kick and snare samples, right. generally speaking, were layered in on some of them. But it was okay, the original but- stock V-drum sounds, and they weren't all that much to write home about, unfortunately. And Roland does a great job with those things. It's just that at that time, that was cutting edge. It's not yeah. cutting edge now. Well, again, 25 years ago, right? And then yeah. computing power and everything with those little brains that you have with the V-Drum kit. It was like it only fits so much, right? Yep. This was the first album that I did with the V-Drums. So this album, Energy Audio Revolution, otherwise known as EAR, was recorded entirely on those V-Drums because of the fact that I had them at that point in time. It was awesome. It was nice. When you started actually doing live symbols then in later projects. What what led up to that? Was that the just sounded better, I'm assuming. Right? Yeah. But or did you get complaints from drummers that it just didn't feel right playing on those? It was a bigger issue with their symbols in the T D ten and the T D ten expansion that I had. They didn't sound good. Yeah. I used them on two, three projects and it was just like, oh, God, I got to stop using these. I got to go with a different way of doing it. And I came up with this concept of miking up cymbals, not hi-hats, mind you, but just cymbals for the ride and a couple of crashes to go with the V-drum kits. As long as you do a high enough high pass filter, you really don't hear the hits in what you're doing. So you can still kind of time correct everything else, but the cymbals are nice and live and they have that live cymbal vibe, which you could not get at the time in any kind of V-drum setup. And again, this is before- Great samples. Drums, yeah, drum samples got as good to, as they are today. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those, another thing, and this is a little bit of a side note, have you ever tried that or had a session where you record actual drum shells separately to all the hardware? Because I know some drummers do that, and I find that really, really interesting. But yeah. I haven't done that I mean, yet with separating yeah. shells from yeah, no, cymbals. But I do think that I would do that eventually. Yeah, I haven't either. But that seems like an ideal situation from a mix engineer's perspective. Sure, right? if you can because get a drummer gonna, to do it. Right. Yeah, that's the other thing. I know Chris Alice that we had on, he mentioned that he had done it in the past. Mm -hmm. But I wonder how many drummers would be actually willing to do that. Of the drummers I've had on projects, I think three. Yeah. I think three of them that I've worked with would do it. Because it would be obviously a really different feel for the drummer to go through and play the parts and not using certain symbols or certain heads for kits. Yeah, yeah. That would be very, very interesting. But I know that there's a lot of big bands that actually do it today. Not big bands, but big, large bands that Mm -hmm. do it. To me, that's a really, really interesting concept. Going through and doing these remixes, what kind of gear did you rely on that you obviously didn't have at the time because of, well, didn't exist, but also computing power wasn't 
as heavy at that point. What kind of software did you rely on to do these timing and pitch correction? The DAW that I used originally to record everything is the DAW that I did all the editing in. It's still very, very powerful for that, and that's Logic Pro. Yeah. And in that regard, it was very fortunate to have, it's like sure. a glove. <laughs> it's yeah. fantastic. And just, I, just to nerd out on that, but that when you did these recordings, it had to have been maybe five? Logic, Logic Four. Five or, was it four even? Mm -hmm. Logic Four. Oh, Crazy man. stuff. And it was <laughs> done using Sound Designer 2 files for a lot of it. I had to start figuring out, okay, I can't open these anymore. And as we discussed in another podcast episode not too long ago, I started trying to discover what is current software that can allow me to convert Sound Designer 2 files to something I can use now, which is generally Broadcast Wave, the app XLD on the Macintosh. Mm. That allowed me to convert anything I couldn't open <laughs> in terms of audio files for things to, for me to edit. In terms of logic, I think it still kills in terms of time correction with its flex time. I know that Luna, the DAW that I use to do the mixes, has warp time, which is pretty similar to flex time. But flex time is a little easier for me to do, especially when I'm trying to export this stuff prior to the mix and treating Luna as just my mix platform. So I did all the pitching stuff using Melodyne, timing correction using Logic. With the V-Drum stuff, I could always go back to them if I wanted to. But if I'm going to do this and remix them, I'm going to make them sound like they were recorded a little bit more now. So I used new drum software which required me to manipulate a bit of the MIDI timing of the V-drums, which spits out an immense amount of fucking data <laughs> with the way that I had it. And at the time that I recorded with the V-drums, and I still have the template that I would probably have to update to a current version of Logic in order to do it. But you go into the environment, and with V-drums, because it was spitting out so much data, you could use a template if you had the wherewithal to make it to be able to channel it into multiple channels. So you could have all the hi-hats on one channel, all the kicks on one channel, all the snares on another channel, all your cymbals on a channel and tom individually tommed out. So it'd be like you had your own 12-channel mix of drums, each channel having its own drum, so to speak. It was, I remember it was a huge process. Yeah, I remember going over to your studio when we first got to know each other and you were kind of showing me Logic and you showed me the environment, which is now called a MIDI environment, I think, in Logic. Mm -hmm. So it really, really powerful stuff that we can do there. I remember looking at your screen and thinking like, what the hell is all this stuff, <laughs> right? Because there's- It was complicated. You know, the, the, yeah, all the wiring that you could do and, and filtering and, and all this kind of stuff. Today, we don't really have to dig into that. I'm glad that they haven't gotten rid of it. It would make in it very logic. difficult if they did in Logic, mainly because the V drums at the time I did this album, I did not separate them with that template. I made that template after doing the, that album. Mm -hmm. 
to separate it out made it a lot easier to do the timing corrections that I needed to do to retain his feel, but to lock him into the loops that he was playing to so that they sounded solid. That was the most time consuming thing on doing these remixes is to lock the drummer in. And because the loops were not all perfectly timed either, but they gave a great vibe. I'm like, I'm going to lock him to the loops. Now, mind you, he's unfortunately passed away, but prior to, and I think I mentioned this in another episode, he was upset with me thinking that I had done something to his playing. He'd roll over in his grave now <laughs> at this point. Probably, yeah. You're reminding me there that there were quite a few loops and stuff going on layered in with the music they had on, oh, yeah. on this particular album. Yeah. So it's interesting because now, of course, you could just time correct the loop and stuff, but but you might lose you the lose feel, the feel of it. as well. Yeah. And that's the thing that's interesting about this is that each section had its own tempo. And in Logic, you can get down to the millionths of a beat i think it is it's pretty high and what its resolution yeah. is and at the time i did it when i created the songs i was using the loops so that when i edited the loops themselves not time correcting the loops but making some that they looped perfectly with yeah. no noises in between and no weird skip in the tempo or the feel or the vibe I didn't do that. I made it so that they looped perfectly and they retained the vibe. So each section had its own tempo within less than a BPM of another. So you're getting sort of a live feel in that regard, but it made it harder for the drummer to play to it. And in relation to what's happening now on the remixes and your question of like, what am I using? Once I've done all the editing in Logic, I export all those multi-tracks out and then I import them into Luna. For this particular album... I have been using the API the console console in Luna mm, okay. to do all the mixing. And obviously your, your gear is better too. That you have I have to be better to monitoring speakers now, which is great. There's software to correct for room problems so that you don't have weird phasing issues and you get a proper flattish response so that you're mixing to things that aren't becoming nodes in the room kind of thing, which also helps dramatically. There's plugins that I have now beyond the emulations of the API console that are better. It's all the way around, just gear is so much better than what was technically available at a price point back then. Yeah, there was one thing that I wanted to bring up because you mentioned it here also before we started recording. When you were editing the drum performances here to time correct it. Yeah. There were a couple of cases where the performance had a kick and a snare at the same time. Yep. And you noticed and you brought up here that you said that if you edited them and time corrected them so that they hit at the same time, yep. you noticed that you just lost the feel right there. It's not even so much losing the feel as you lose the fact that it was played live, period. Yeah. Once you line up every hit to be exactly the same. Now you're saying, I program these. Yeah, it's one of those things they have to be really careful with, either when you're cleaning up stuff, like in your case, mm -hmm. or when you're programming stuff. Because we're not talking giant differences here, obviously, but we're talking about enough where it sounds different. Yeah. It sounds different. If you everything is on right on the beat, it sounds very metronome. And well, it's, it just it's, sounds robotic but that's the funny thing because we t we started off 
talking, talking about, about how we, we want things to be perfect, right? Yeah, and yeah. in tune and stuff. So to an extent. there's right. So I'm locking these to the loops. And the other thing that was interesting about doing the drum editing in Logic is that I found a way to edit the V drum information that spits out an insane amount of data, especially in relation to the hi-hat. Most guys will just time correct the hi-hat hits. But without the V-drum data of how open or closed that hi-hat is at that given hit, shit changes. And you can drastically alter the feel of the performance because he might have been hitting an open hi-hat, but you time correct that without time correcting the data that goes along with it for the opening closing of the hi-hat. And suddenly the hi-hat might be closed instead of opened. And that totally destroys the feel. It took me some experimenting, which... I finally figured out how to time correct the MIDI controller data along with the hi-hat hits. And it was something that you showed me that sparked it, that had to yeah. do with the piano roll where you could pull up the, the automation, the automation data yeah. in there. And it ended up pulling up the controller data as well. But it was a little bit tricky because you couldn't just select the controller data you had to select both the controller data and the hi-hat data, but you can't do that easily. But I figured out how to do it. And then yeah. you could then do the, your timing corrections within the piano roll. Everything that I did was not locked to the grid. I did it to a percentage. And I usually mm-hmm. do roughly somewhere around 75%-ish of time correction in the direction of wherever the snare was pulled due to the loop. And it retained, yes, and it retained the value of what he played in terms of a groove, but just tightened it up to the loop to the point where it sounded much more natural rather than messy. Did you notice any sort of major trends in your either the processing or mixing or structure of the old way they used to work? Well, as opposed to now that you've obviously moved on in several different ways because it's a quarter of a century later. Right. In bringing everything into Luna and organizing it the way I would normally organize workflow now, I've made it possible for me to do, obviously, all the different mixes that I never did the first time around with stems, with alternate mixes that you would do for production music, all that's built into everything I do now, which makes things nice if I ever want to send out files. And I know that that particular drummer that I mentioned who did a video to playing to one of the songs, he wants to play to more of them. So I'm making alternate mixes for him, and it's very easy to just drop that right out, and then I can send them to him and he can do it more. And it's been a valuable thing. People have been responding to his drum videos that he's been putting out, and it's resulted in a positive thing for me, which is nice. That's very cool. What have you learned going through this experience? What's been the biggest lessons? The sheer power of computing that we have now by comparison to then. Back then, while I had cutting edge computer power, it was very limited. There were no emulations and it was difficult to use a plethora of plugins, whether it be a compressor or EQ across 24 plus tracks, which is generally about how many it was for that album. Now, going into Luna, which is an entirely different DAW, sonically it sounds ridiculously better. I've got a whole bunch more depth and clarity that I didn't have before, which is great. I've got new effects that I can use that I couldn't pull off back in the day, and now I can do much easier. 
and the fact that I'm mixing this on what would essentially be an API console, it's now giving it a record feel rather than this was recorded digitally speaking and it sounded good for the time, but now it really feels more like a record to me. And yeah. a lot more dynamic feel to it. I'm doing things that I didn't know how to do in mixing when I first did this. Yeah, I would say the, the big thing for you is probably, you know, the, the 25 years of experience, right? Obviously, oh, you're yeah. much better at what you do now. Another thing is we, we're talking about fixing stuff here, mm -hmm. whether it's sonically or performance-wise. It's still a good lesson to me, I think, to really consider like getting it right at the source. Oh, yeah. It's one of those things that people keep saying. But I think with experience and a little know-how and a little bit of determination of trying to get it as good as you can at the source will make the job of mixing a track a whole lot easier. Substantially. Because you don't have to worry about things as opposed to thinking about, well, I got all these tools in my disposal, I can just fix it. To me, I think it's the other way around. There are tools there to fix it if you absolutely have to. If you absolutely but, have to, yes. Yeah. Ideally, you shouldn't have to. At the time that I recorded it, felt like, cool, I've got all this power to record this album. It's awesome. And I don't have to go pay some big studio to do it. Would it have turned out better had I done that? Sure. I would have been under the tutelage of somebody that knew more about what they were doing and had an actual console at the time. I was using a Delta 1010, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> to record all that as far as the interface. And I was going straight into the interface from a mic or a MIDI device for the input. And that was what we had. It was cutting edge, but it's not the same as it is now where you have a plethora of choices and you can emulate gear that is somewhat expensive for most people at this point. One thing that I want to just bring up here that I actually asked you when you were in this process, and I'm a little bit proud of you for not going down this rabbit hole, but, but when you were recording these tracks, the album, there were no amp sims. That didn't no, exist yet. So, I so these were amps. Miking a guitar amp, yeah. Right. Not to give in to the temptation of, because as far as I know, you didn't record a DI track because there was simply no reason to at that mm -hmm. point. Correct. To resist the temptation of going back and re-recording it with a sonic difference that you could achieve today. You had an interesting answer to that. What was that? Do you remember what you said? No, you'll need to remind me. <laughs> well, it's because you wanted to retain the integrity of what was there. Yeah. And not trying to improve upon that, or air quote here, improve upon it. Because would it be better or worse? It'd be different, but It'd it's not different. necessarily meaning that you would have you would gain anything from it. Right. I felt it was better to time correct it than it was to re-record it. Would it have sound sterile if I did it again? Maybe. That wasn't necessarily the impetus of why I didn't re-record things, especially with things like guitar and using those. I felt the guitar sounds were there. I thought the instrument sounds were there, except obviously for the electronic drums. The place where I really got the sticking point was vocals. If I were to redo a vocal, I'd have to redo them all. Because my voice sounds yeah. different. I have sure. a different mic. I have a different setup. Everything would be different. And that would be drastically different to that. It's fortunate that I have the tools to fix these. Now, mind you, they're minor corrections. They're not drastic changes in terms of the timing. 
it wasn't like I sucked. <laughs> it was just I was didn't have the same ear to hear the entire arrangement like I do now. Yeah. Is the better way of saying it, I think. Well, nice. Yeah. Nice, nice. To wrap this up, when are you hoping to have these up now? Because these will replace the albums that are available on the streaming platforms now, right? They will eventually, yes. The plan is to leave everything up as is for now. When I get ready to re-release something, I will pull that version off and then I will start dripping out the new versions to release each song individually to a point of it makes a complete album and then release the album. That's the point. Nice. All right, cool, man. Well, have you enjoyed the process that you've gone through here of doing that? I will say this. There's a song that I exported this morning that I listened to on the streaming service. I guess I didn't spend enough time listening to how the streaming service changed the value of the song from the original CD recorded version that I was listening to and going, oh, wow, that sounds awful. But with the new version of the mix, I'm sure that when it goes to streaming services, it's going to sound just fine. It's weird in that regard. It's making me happy to hear this stuff with more punch to it without just sheerly going for volume, which is what was happening at the time. And the guy that I had mixed it with previously, fantastic guy from Australia, really nice cat. I'm going to leave his name on as the inspiration for the new mixes, but obviously he has no hand in it in that regard. The amount of dynamic and punch and clarity and everything else that's happening with the new versions of the mixes makes me happier because it's much closer to the sound and the way I wanted to hear it in my head originally that just wasn't necessarily possible back then. And for a vast majority of people out there who've never heard the original, it's not going to matter. They're only going to end up hearing the new version anyway, and I'm never going to re-release the old versions <laughs> unless they have a CD they find somewhere on some arcane CD site. Yeah, and if somebody wants to spend a lot of money for that CD, hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for sharing your experience. You're welcome. Let's move on to our Friday finds. Chris, what have you got this week? I jumped on the UA train oh boy. this week. Yeah, mm -hmm. not fully and completely. I did pick up a couple of uh, UA plugins, and the one that I want to mention today was the uh, Sound City Studios. Isn't that lovely? It's pretty frigging cool. I've just started scratching the surface of what it can do. Mm -hmm. It's nice, just the flexibility of it that, that you can do, and I think I'm going to have a lot of fun with that one. Oh, on this remixing album that we were talking about, I used it on just about every track for the drums. Well, well see what I mean? <laughs> yeah. What about you, Jody? What do you got? I'm going with a plugin that was released by Isotope. It is called VEA. It is designed for podcasters. So if you are also a podcaster, you might want to look into this. It is known as the Voice Enhancement Assistant, VEA which should make your vocal recordings for your podcast sound a bit more powerful, a bit more polished, and a bit more professional. Oh, boy. <laughs> so well, there you go. From, yeah. 
While we've got your attention, we ask that you go to InsideTheRecordingStudio.com and sign up for our mailing list. You'll need to be on our email list to be eligible for future giveaways. And we'll make sure you don't miss any future episodes of this amazing podcast. Send us an email at goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com with the word revisiting, and you'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic or suggestion for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, contact us at the contact page and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode with that i'll say see you next week thanks for listening people i'll talk to you later jody